Turn with me to Ezra chapter 4 this morning as we continue our study here in the book of Ezra. And we're going to uh, be learning about uh, learning from setbacks in Ezra chapter 4. No doubt we've all heard about people who take three steps forward and two steps back. Well, that's the concept that we have here in Ezra chapter 4. God had stirred up the heart of the pagan king, King Cyrus, to issue a decree for the Jews to return to their land and to rebuild his temple. And that was uh, something to rejoice in. One step forward. Hooray! 50,000 Jews responded by giving up their lives in Babylon and making the long, dangerous trek back to the land. And uh, we rejoice again, two steps forward. And then they built an altar and gathered in Jerusalem and celebrated the Feast of, of Tabernacles and found or laid the foundation for the new temple. And again, we rejoice because three steps forward, making progress, right? Well, then the enemy hit and the work on the uh, temple stopped one step back. And the work ceased for 16 long years two steps back. And they were still in the land. Yes, they were still one step ahead, but there was no center for worship in Jerusalem. The people, intimidated by their enemies, settled into a routine of life that got along without temple worship until God stirred up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and they got to the rebuilding of the temple moving again. Last week, we looked at starting over with God. And new beginnings are exciting and they're filled with hope. Uh, things don't have to be as they've been during our time in our Babylon, so to speak. But His abundant grace can turn back, uh, we can turn back to the Lord and we can start over. We can start afresh. But no longer have we turned back than the enemy begins to hit and we suffer spiritual setback. We often have heard the saying, perhaps for every mountain experience, there's a valley. And uh, sometimes things seem to be really going great, but about that time, we have a setback. We're not sure that we want to ride the roller coaster back up only to face another sickening drop. If you know what a roller coaster does for you. And so we settle in for spiritual mediocrity. And that's what's happening here in Ezra chapter 4. And the lesson for us is this. In verse 1, it says here, The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that they were building a temple to the God of Israel. And we cannot build, and we're not really planning a building as such, a plan at this time. We don't, uh, we're uh, getting very close to paying this building off, praise the Lord. Uh, so we're not, we're not looking to expand our facility at this point. But it doesn't make any difference whether you're building a church or uh, to enlarge the ministry or building your own spiritual life. It's impossible to do that without the enemy hearing about it. And he's going to come prowling. He's going to be subtle at first, but more aggressively, he's going to, uh, he's going to try to thwart your efforts. And so to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Notice, first of all, 
First of all, our spiritual enemy will oppose. You can count on it. You're going to get opposition when you try to live the Christian life. And it's crucial to remember this. What often happens is a person makes a new beginning with God and either at conversion or sometime after a captivity in Babylon, you know, the world. And he naively assumes that since he has now turned to the Lord, everything's going to go just fine from here on out. Finally, God is on my side, we think. Our hopes have never been higher. And just about that time, wham, the enemy attacks. The enemy hits and he goes, we go down and we feel lower than we did before we turn back to the Lord. Now the enemy has a number of tricks or tools because the enemy is subtle, because the enemy is Satan. And so he has a number of tools in his bag. The first one is compromise. The enemy's most dangerous trick is to lure us into a compromise under the guise of cooperation. And we find here in Ezra chapter 4, we see this in verse 2 where it says, Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Ashur, which brought us up hither. If that day was like our day, Zerubbabel and Jeshua probably didn't have a waiting list of those who wanted to help. Because there were so many workers, along came some locals we'd call them, and they offered to work with them. Could have been a bridge of outreach. Could have been a place where they could build relationships while they worked together. It was an opportunity to befriend their neighbors. And so in light of that, their answer hits us kind of in the face with like a wet dish rag in verse 3. He says, down there in verse 3, Ye have nothing to do with us. To build the house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. As King Cyrus the king of Persia had commanded us. Well how rude can you get turning down people that are going to help you work. You know people that are able bodied. And they're they're saying hey we'll help you build your church. We'll help you build your temple. No. You have nothing to do with us. We're going to build our a house unto our God ourselves. And they were right. To find out why they were right, you have to understand 2 Kings chapter 17. And these people had brought from Babylon and, and uh, had been brought from Babylon and surrounded areas into the northern kingdom after its fall. And at the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. And he sent lions that killed some of them, and they assumed that their problems stemmed not from knowing the custom of the God of the land. And so they called a priest from Israel who taught them about the Lord, and they began sacrifices to the Lord. But they actually continued to worship their own gods from Babylon. Actually, in Second Kings seventeen forty-one, it says, So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images. 
both their children and their children's children and did their their fathers, so do they unto this day. Now it sounds good for people to say, hey, we're, we worship the same God you do. But we also worship our own idols. There's a fancy word for that. Let me give that to you. The problem with these people is they're the forefathers of the New Testament Samaritans. The, the problem is synchronism. Syncretism. You say, what is syncretism? Can't hardly even say it, preacher. Well, it's a word that means they blended false religion with the worship of the one true God. They added God to their pantheon, but they never uh, dropped their idols. And if they had worked together with the returning exiles, the Lord's people would have fallen into spiritual compromise, mingling idolatry with the worship of God. And there are many people today who say, yeah, I, 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 I believe in God. I, I think, uh, you know, I had a, a religious experience and I, and I believe what you guys believe, but I want to hang on to my old life too. They want to add God to their life. But salvation involves repentance, turning from the old life unto God. The danger of the appeal of these enemies was that their words were not absolute lies. They were kind of true. They did worship God. They sacrificed to Him. The problem was they did not worship God alone. Some of the returned remnant could have accused Zerubbabel and Jeshua of being too hard on these men. They believe in God just like we do. Why not make peace with them? Let them work together with us. And the answer is, for the same reason you don't drink water that is only a little bit polluted, it's because it'll poison you. And there are great pressures today to compromise the gospel by joining with those who claim to believe it, but who add things to it to totally destroy the grace of God. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus is God. Did you know that? Some of you came out of the Roman Catholic Church. You believe that Jesus is God. You probably believe that he died on the cross to save us, uh, save you from your sins. And they may even say that they believe that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But there's one little problem there. They believe that we're not saved by faith in Christ alone. They add to the gospel. And evangelical pastors today are under immense pressure to work with the Catholic Church in the cause of Christ. Many influential evangelical leaders have signed documents that urges us to bridge the gap with Rome. But if we do, we compromise the pure gospel of God's grace and we mingle it with the idols of the worldly religion. It's not just the Catholic Church, it's many other churches too that try to say, hey, we all believe God, we'll work with you, let's let's work together. But they don't believe the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice. They add to it. They don't believe the, the gospel that is given to us in the Bible. 
they add to it. And if we resist the enemy's subtle approach, he will show us his true colors by a more aggressive opposition. And so the enemy then begins to use this tool of discouragement. Verse 4, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah. We're not told specifically how they did this, but maybe they said, well, you know, if you rebuild this temple, it's just going to be get torn down again. Maybe they knew that thousands would flock to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and they said, we don't want this kind of traffic in our backyard. Uh, build your temple somewhere else. And if it were in our day, they would be down at City Hall. They'd be protesting the zoning laws and the environmental impact. And Satan often uses the tool of discouragement, doesn't he? He whispers to us why what you're doing won't make any difference in the world. Those kids you teach, they don't appreciate your efforts. Why even bother? Just quit and join, enjoy yourself. He tries to discourage pastors when people have worked, we have worked with turn against us. Some have spread unjustified criticism and they have led others out of the church. You see, you're just laboring in vain, they say. And so the enemy will use discouragement. Then he also uses fear. After discouraging the people, it says in verse 4, they trouble them in building. When you're discouraged... Fear can easily creep in. I think there are even pastors who have wrestled with the thoughts of discouragement. I know I have. Discouragement quickly turns into many fears about the future. And then the enemy uses misinformation. Along with that, we can conclude or include false accusations. Look at verse 5 says, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, whether these hired counselors operated at the royal court or whether they circulated among the Jews or both, they did spread half-truths and misinformation to undermine the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. These men are just out to build a kingdom for themselves. Uh, They're going to rebel against the king. They're lining their own pockets with the construction money. And the rumors start flying to frustrate the counsel of the godly leaders. Now as we look at verse 6 through 23, it's actually, verses 6 through 23 is a long parenthesis. And it's where Ezra shares examples of the opposition that came later. And he carefully names the different kings that he is referring to so that his readers would not misunderstand. And these later examples did not concern the rebuilding of the temple, but of the city and the walls during the reign of King Artaxerxes, as it says in verse 12, whom Nehemiah served. And Israel's enemies wrote this letter to Artaxerxes that was filled with false accusations and half-truths. They said, if the city were rebuilt, the Jews would stop paying their taxes. That's what verse 13 uh, talks about. They will not pay toll or tribute or custom. That would get any king's attention, you know, when people don't pay their taxes. 
The critics also claim to be loyal to the king. The word in verse 14, we find and now because we have maintenance, maintenance, that word there has to do with eating the salt of, pal- of the palace. The Egyptian kings had made salt a royal monopoly, and perhaps the Persians had also. Now, if you take a look at and do a little word study here, you'll realize that our English word salary, if you have a job, no doubt you have a salary. It comes from the Latin word salarium, which is a ration of salt that was given to the soldiers. How'd you like to get paid in salt? Anyone go for that? Uh, just give me, you know, <laughs> give me money, right? And that's why we say we have the expression, a man is not worth his Salt. Man's not worth his salarium or his salary. And being loyal to the palace, the critics claimed that they did not want to see the king dishonored by these rebellious Jews. And so they advised him to look it up in his record books and he would find that Jerusalem had a record of being rebellious in an evil city. And if they didn't stop them, He didn't stop them. They would be true to their past. They would rebel again. And again, these are half-truths. This is misinformation. And it is true. Israel had rebelled in the past. They had rebelled against tyrants who had forced them into subjection. But to smear the city with such broad strokes was both unfair and untrue. And the Lord told Jeremiah to tell the people to seek the welfare of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf while they were there. Now, they don't talk about that. You see, Satan uses the same trick to smear God's servants today. He'll take a partial truth and begin to paint it with broad strokes to make a man of God look extreme or unstable. And then if need be, the enemy will form, thirdly, coalitions. Or fifthly, excuse me, number five. Coalitions. This was to overwhelm the city by sheer force of numbers. The ploy behind this letter that it speaks of here is possibly more than uh, the tactics imply. But everyone is against these people. Just look at the names. Look at the different backgrounds. If all these men were from such different backgrounds and places, and how they can they how can they agree together against the Jews? Well, the Jews must be a problem. And the majority is always right, right? No. These Jews are a terrible source of trouble, according to the letter. And even so today, the enemy operates by appealing to popular opinion against the Lord's people. You hear it on the news. You hear people talking about these narrow-minded, intolerant, Bible-believing Christians. They're a real problem. You know what? People are even saying, they're like the Taliban. They're trying to impose their views on everyone else. Now the majority of Americans, they believe in God, but they don't believe in such an intolerant, unloving God as these people do. You know, we believe in the basic teachings of the Bible, but we're not so narrow, so old-fashioned as to think, literally true? This book is literally true. We couldn't believe that. And so they claim to believe God, but they support reproduction rights, which means killing babies. 
They celebrate diversity, which means promoting homosexuality. And this criticism doesn't just come from the non-religious segment of our society. Listen to a quote from a former mega church pastor by the name of Rob Bell. Rob Bell, the former megachurch pastor turned spiritual advisor to Oprah Winfrey, said that the culture is ready to embrace homosexuality and the same-sex marriage, and if the church hopes to stay relevant, it must accept these relationships and stop looking to the Bible as its best defense. Bell was recently asked by Winfrey on her network show, Super Soul Sunday, how close Christian churches are to accepting homosexuality, and Bell said, they're close. And warned if they don't, they'll become even more irrelevant than before. By the way, he doesn't go to church anymore. Doesn't even go to church. Now we won't talk all morning about Rob Bell, but let me give you another quote. comes from a fellow by the name of Joe, Joe Scarborough sat on a MSNBC panel recently, he said this, a very crude way to put it is, this would be the ultra-fundamentalist Christian who believe every single word of the Bible has to be interpreted in the exact ways in which also would lead some to violence. Folks, people are saying the very same things about Christians and Bible-believing Christians, as these enemies were saying about the Jews back there in Ezra's day. How about another tool in Satan's box is the government. At times, the enemy will use government edicts and sheer force to block our spiritual advance. King Artaxerxes issued a decree to stop the work, providentially adding And it says in verse 21 here, until another commandment shall be given from me. You can't continue to work until I say go again. Thankfully, that decree was issued after Nehemiah's tactfully sought the king's permission to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But on this occasion, the king's decree in hand, Israel's enemies went quickly and they stopped the Jews by force. In verse 23, And then verse 24 goes back chronologically to verse 5. Remember, from verses 6 to 23 was the parentheses. And the result of the opposition was that the work on God's house ceased for 16 years. And even so, the enemy today works through the government channels and the judicial cases to enact laws that oppose Christianity and prohibit Christians from living as God would have us to live. We now have no-fault divorce laws that undermine lifelong commitment of marriage, enables couples to split up for just any reason. Spanking is already illegal in most all the, the schools and The day's not far away when they're going to make it illegal for you to spank your child in your home. Or else you'll be uh, charged with child abuse, and I'm no doubt some of that's already taken place. But then a final tactic is continuance. The enemy does not give up in its opposition to our spiritual progress. Now again, verses 6 through 23 
chronicle the events that happened up to 80 years after the events of verses 1 through 4 or 5 and then into 24. But Ezra may have included these later events not only to give examples of opposition, but also to prove that the decision to reject the help of the enemies, as he did in verse 1, was right. Satan's not going to give up on you. He's going to continue to oppose. And also these verses show that Ezra's later strong contention against the mixed marriages of the returned exiles was well-founded. They also show the unrelenting nature of Satan's opposition. He does not give up after just one setback. He's going to come again and again and again. He keeps on countering whatever the Lord's people try to do to move ahead spiritually. The enemy's going to come in with opposition. And if you can get, uh, he can get you to just kick back and give up, the Satan, then Satan has won. He's won his objective. Sometimes you just might think, well, I, I give up. It's, it's too hard. Well, then Satan's won the battle. And he's going to continue to battle and continue to oppose as long as we live. Well, that brings us to the response to the enemy's attacks. There are many wrong ways to respond to the enemy's attacks. Number one is the, what I just talked about, and that is give up. Give up your spiritual goals. Go back to your old way of life. The prophet Haggai shows that many of the Jews had gotten distracted with the building of their homes, and so they just, you know, neglected the building of the Lord's house. And I've seen this happen over and over and over in, in, in the lives of Christians. Someone gets excited about serving the Lord. They jump into the new ministry with enthusiasm, but then the enemy hits them. And often with criticism from fellow believers, they get hurt. They drop out. They think, well, if that's the thanks I get for trying to serve, forget it. And so they may still attend church occasionally, but they never get involved in serving again. They give up. It's a wrong way to respond. Another wrong way is just to settle. Settle for second best, spiritually that is. Some of the Jews may have thought, well, at least we're out of Babylon. We're back in our land now. Even if we can't have a temple, we'll have to do without it. But without the temple, the Jews couldn't worship God as they should have. They wouldn't have had the spiritual center for the nation. And some Christians try to make a new beginning with the Lord, but then the enemy comes along and attacks them, and so they back off and they decide, well, I'm just going to kind of exist here. I'm just going to live a mediocre spiritual existence, settling in. The third wrong response would be to blame Blame God or blame God's leaders for not doing what they, uh, you think they should have done. Perhaps some of the people grumbled against Zerubbabel and Jeshua for their scheme of rebuilding the temple. Things are going okay before we started this project. We shouldn't have ever started this. Why did our leaders ever get us into this battle? Maybe really it wasn't the Lord's will. We need to keep in mind that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against unseen spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, as Ephesians 6.12 tells us. Otherwise, when things go wrong at church or in your relationships with other Christians, you know, it's easy to grumble against God, against the leaders God has put over you. Instead of working together, praying together, moving ahead with what the Lord wants done, the church then fragments into angry factions and each blaming the other for the problems. Boy, the enemy has the victory there, doesn't he? That doesn't please the Lord. And then fourthly, a wrong response would be to conclude. Now, I don't mean the conclusion of the message here. I'm getting close, but I'm talking about conclude that we must not be, it must not be God's time. And when he wants it done, he'll get it done. I realize that God has his timetable and that often we, uh, it does not coincide with our timetable. But through Haggai, the Lord quotes this people as saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And so they focused on building their own homes, and for 16 years after the temple foundation had been laid, there was no further progress. And it's easy to spiritualize our laziness by saying, Well, it must not be the Lord's will. Or it must not be God's timing for this or that to happen. We mistakenly assume that if the Lord is in it, we don't have hassles, and we don't have setbacks, and we don't have frustrations. I've never found that to be true. Even if the Lord's in it, it's the Lord's work. There are going to be hassles and setbacks and frustrations because the enemy's at work trying to stop your progress. You know, I think sometimes uh, we need to spend more time in the Word and then perhaps reading some good Christian biographies would be encouraging. There's one Christian biography that really has been a, a blessing to me a number of years ago. Great biography I read years ago was the biography of James Hudson Taylor. In fact, it so impacted me at that time, we named our son after him, Jacob Taylor. Jacob is a form of James, who was also my dad's name. So Jacob Taylor, named after James Hudson Taylor. But you know, you hear a man like Hudson Taylor, and you wrongly assume that he started China Inland Mission, and boom, thousands came to Christ, right? No, better read it again. Because that's not what happened. He did start the mission. Eventually, thousands did come to Christ, but not without innumerable problems and setbacks that had to be overcome. And reading the story of what he went through or uh, can give you a perspective and a strength to endure when you face the opposition and whatever God calls you to do. And so our spiritual enemy will vigorously oppose every attempt at spiritual advance. And there are some wrong ways to respond to his attacks. Finally, there are some biblical strategies for overcoming the enemy. And just as the soldiers plan strategies to defeat the enemy, so should we. There are many strategies we could list here, but for sake of time, I'll just mention four. Number one, know. 
Know the enemy. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul just told the church to forgive the man who had sinned, but repented. And then he explains, lest Satan should get an advantage for us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Every, from the Garden of Eden, including our text here, the, through the, the whole Bible, it shows us how craftily Satan works to tempt and deceive God's people. And to know his schemes arms you to stand and fight when he strikes. Secondly, resist. Resist the enemy. James 4 and verse 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't have to memorize seven steps or special prayers to overcome the, the devil. Just say no. Well, that sounds like a good slogan, doesn't it? Somebody used it. But we do that. We need, we need to resist the enemy. We need to say no to the enemy. Put your spiritual armor in place, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and resist the devil. And then submit. Submit and draw near to God before telling us to resist the devil. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. And then he goes on to say, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And if the enemy or God allows the enemy to cause you trials, your responsibility is to submit to God, knowing that he will lift the trials the minute he sees that it is for your good. Rather than pull away from God in the trial, we need to draw nearer to him knowing that he cares for us. <coughs> and then fourthly, persevere. Persevere in the face of opposition. Folks, it's a lifelong battle. If we try to do anything significant for the Lord, the enemy will hear about it, and we're going to be, that we're trying to build, and he's going to stir up our opposition and if we give up, he wins, and God's kingdom suffers. If we persevere, his kingdom advances. When he was seven years old, his family was forced out of their home, and he had to work to help to support them. When he was nine, his mother died. At 22, he lost his job as a store clerk. He wanted to go to law school, but lacked the education. At age 23, he went into debt to become a partner in a small store. At 26, his business partner died. He left a huge debt that took years to repay. At 28, after courting a girl for four years, he asked her to marry him, and she said no. At age 37, on his third try, he was elected to Congress, but two years later he failed and was to be reelected. At 41, his 10-year-old son died. At 45, he ran for the Senate and lost. At age 47, he failed as the vice presidential candidate. At age 49, he again ran for the Senate and lost. Some of you already know who I'm talking about, don't you? At age 51, he was elected president of the United States. Many consider that man, Abraham Lincoln, to be the greatest leader our country has ever had. Lincoln suffered numerous setbacks in his personal life. But he persevered. Eventually he succeeded. 
And you're going to suffer numerous setbacks if you commit yourselves to the Lord and and try to follow Him. And so you need to be prepared for the enemy's attacks and don't give up. Let's pray. Father in heaven.